This is Fundraising Radio, episode number 23, and today's a guest speaker, we have Stan Vanerbeek, founder of K5 Ventures. And in this episode, we're going to talk about two main things. First, how to reach an angel investor, and second, how to reach an angel investor if you're working in a hard tech world. So Stan, let's uh, kick it off by you giving us some background on yourself and on K5 Ventures. Um, um... Sure. Um, I actually need to correct you. I'm not the actual founder. I'm one of the limited partners and venture partners um, of the fund. The fund was founded by um, two entrepreneurs, investors in um, Orange County called Ray Chan, Amir Benefitami, um, who were both president of Thickers Angels, which is a large angels group, I think, both in, I mean, I think all over uh, California, they have a few chapters. Um, so they started a fund and I've been involved um, with that fund for a few years, um, both on the investment side and helping out with companies. So I've seen quite a few deals passing by. Uh, this fund is fully invested. Um, so we're actually um, not raising a, a follow-up fund at this point. So we're rather managing the uh, existing um the existing companies in the portfolio um, and besides that I'm also privately as a business angel um, involved in a number of deals uh, and then I have my other activities as um, you know technology leader CTO etc with a few um, with a few companies so yeah that's sort of the background uh, the background on it Right. Understood. Uh, sorry, first of all, for calling you a founder. Uh, something mixed up in my head. Uh, but a couple of questions about K5 Ventures before we move on to your uh, like personal investment activities. Um, so you said that you're not raising a follow-up round for K5 Ventures. Can you elaborate a little bit on that? So first of all, why well, is we that? Did, we did, yeah, we did raise a fairly large fund um, a few years ago. And it took like three, four years to invest that fund. Um, we are at this point, you know, it, it's really, it really depends on the managing partners. I'm a, I'm a venture partner. I'm not one of the managing partners. So it really depends on the managing partners if they've got any appetite to go through that whole cycle. Because I think what um, most entrepreneurs often forget is that raising a fund and putting together a fund is, is, is often as hard as raising funds as an entrepreneur. And so it's a lot of energy and a lot of time to put a fund together or at least to raise a follow-up fund. So I think in this case, um, the fund um, has been raised a few years ago. It's fully invested, I think, with a, um, I think around 70 investments. Um, and I think at one point, there was not a lot of appetite by the managing directors to raise, um, to raise a second fund. Right. That's pretty understandable. Uh, actually, one of my previous speakers was telling how the funds are raised, and it sounds way, way worse than raising just regular capital for a startup. So um, <laughs> investors' life is not easier than, than startupers' life. No way. So um, mm -hmm. let's talk about your personal investment activities. Um, can you give me some uh, like idea of what you invest in? What do you look at? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, I, I can maybe give you a little bit of my own background. If that, yeah, if that, that would help. Um, uh, so I think uh, you know I've been I've been always always a technology person. I've always been passionate 
passionate about technology. Um, but I actually um, also got a background in um, a little bit of a different industry. I'm, I've got a background in the motion picture and, uh, and television industry and the broadcast industry. And I built um, a lot of technology and products. My first company that I did is actually a company I started in, I think, the early 2000s. Uh, and that was acquired in 2010, 2011. Uh, was a startup building robotic camera systems for the motion picture and uh, television industry. So if you look at the film sets today, um, there's a lot of the camera moves that are very hard to uh, execute by manually by a cameraman. So we use robots to execute the camera moves and the same for the TV industry, replace cameramen by robots for cost saving and automation and precision, etc. So that was my last company. So I've got a background in hardware, mechanical engineering, embedded systems, uh, vision, uh, image recognition, etc. real-time rendering. So that's a little bit where I'm coming from. Um, I've got less of a background in uh, web technology and consumer products. So the investments I look for have preferably a real technology component to it. And I think there's, of course, a wide range, um, you know, a wide range of what technology is. I think most of the companies you, to, you see today, they, of course, use technology, but it's not that they're really technology companies. They're more like consumer companies using web technology and, and all the advantages software has. But you can hardly say that they're really technology companies. You know, they, they don't have a lot of hardcore technology. So in general, I look for deals where I can sort of add something to it. And investors have been um, very, you know, it's been very difficult for hardware startups and for hard tech to sort of raise right. um, because investors seems to be, you know, for them, it's even a lot of the investors even don't really understand it. So that's sort of <laughs> where I try to... Um, where I to play play a little bit where there's some real technology. It can be hardware. Um, of course, software is the big leverage, right? For everything we do, even when I was building my robotics company, it was a lot of hardware, a lot of mechanical engineering, etc. But still, the software made the difference. That makes sense. Got it. So uh, I'm really wondering uh, why do you think? So basically, you are one of the two people that I know who invest in hard tech. Why do you think so few investors invest in this? Uh, you, you said earlier that you think it's because they understand the technology or something like that. But I think most of the startups that I've seen that work in hard tech, they're not that hard to operate. I mean, to understand what do you think is the, maybe there's a deeper reason. I think it's also the venture capital model in a way. I don't know. Well, a lot of money to be made also with hard, difficult technology. Um, though I think a lot of the funds and a lot of the um, investors, they, they want to, you know, they want to be the next investor in the next unicorn. And, and that often only happens when you've got large, like very potentially very large markets, um, much less with a B2B or very specific technology. Um, but I think there's a lot of room for it. So I think it's, it's more the, the, the venture model they use or the, the investment model they use where, you know, we all know that, you know, you do 10 investments and, you know, there's only one or two, maybe hopefully one that really hits it big. And that's where they break even the fund or they break even the fund on the ones on the middle ones that, that sort of get liquidated or sold for what they put in. And then hopefully that one big hit 
sort of gives the very big returns. I think with this really hard tech sort of companies, that's sort of a different model. You sort of need to have a number of investments that all sort of give a fair return, I feel. So I think it's more the VCs that um, maybe themselves, they, some of them, you know, there's a lot of biotech that's also complicated. So it really depends the investor and what, what their background is. Do they have an engineering background or do they more have a sales or business development background? True. Yeah, that makes complete sense. So maybe that's one of the reasons that a lot of the investors more have a commercial or financial background, right? Than an engineering yeah. background. So they they feel more comfortable with something that has you know, projections on usage and projections on users, etc., than on intrinsic technology. Right. Yeah. I'm sure I was listening to a podcast where the guy said that basically all the investors have either financial or engineering backgrounds, which is pretty, pretty funny, I think. Um, so how, um, what's the average check that you're writing, uh, as an investor right now? Well, personally, you know, I'm, I'm more personally, I'm, if, if, if you're part of a fund, you can write bigger checks, right? In early stage right. for a fund, you're sort of looking between if it's early stage, you're looking between maybe 100 and between 100 and 300k or something sort of ticket price. Um, if you're looking in personal investments, you just need to you just need to do many more deals at a you know at a lower at a lower amounts. So you're looking at 25 or 50 or 100k. Um, I I still believe as a as an investor or an angel you can make the difference by really helping out. I mean, you know, it's it's classic, right? Everyone is saying this, but most of the mm -hmm. investors actually just write the checks and then hope for the best. Um, so it, it really depends. I'm more of an operator. If if I know the industry or if I know the business or if I understand the technology, I really like to help out. Um, I really like to help out, which is a little bit of a different sort of, um, you know, a different approach. So. That, that smart money thing still exists, but I feel that there's very few business angels or angel investors or, or people who invest personally that actually do that. You know, they, they keep very, you know, they do the, they do the update meetings and they maybe join a board meeting, et cetera, but they don't really get involved and hands-on often. Right. So let's talk a little bit more, more about this practical part. Um, for example, uh, what I was wondering is this. Usually, it's very hard for young entrepreneurs to reach uh, big VCs because they just don't invest in small companies, right? So, how do they approach people like yourself? How do they approach angel investors? Um, well, I think there's the the classical ways, right? There's um, you know, there's from AngelList to um, to the business angel networks. I I think if you're an entrepreneur. Uh, I would really look for people who have a background in your industry or, or in, in what you're trying to accomplish. Because there, I mean, besides the money, the money doesn't really matter that much. Of course, you need some money to keep going, etc. But if these people really understand the industry or understand the technology and have been through all of this, they can bring so much more to the table. Um, if you're willing to take their advice, of course. So I think I would look for I would rather look for people who have done really well in your industry or in the niche you're working in. And maybe even these people are not 
part of a business angel network. They just maybe did really very well and they're very busy with other things. But that's maybe a better, it's maybe a better approach than, you know, I think you should pitch for the angel networks, etc. And it's, it's a good exercise. And maybe you run into some people who understand what you're trying to do. But I would be a little bit more if I would do, you know, if I would raise money today, I would be a little bit more proactive and smart about what people I approach and, and maybe trying to approach a lot of people who are not, um, you know, who are not sort of like angels and angel, like, you know, like angel investors in an angel network or something. I would rather approach uh, people from the industry and, and see if you can work from there. And if they're willing to put in a little bit of money and you've got an industry insider or someone who understands a product or technology, it will be much, much easier to pull another money. Right. Yeah. I've actually just talked to a startup who were planning to do the same exact thing that you just recommended, which I think is a great strategy. Um, so um, let's move back a little bit towards my... Uh, previous interview, actually. Uh, my last speaker said he's a, a managing partner of a pretty big fund and they invest in the layer stages. And what he says is that on the layer stages, you have uh, larger returns, which I don't quite agree to. And also what he said is that angel investors usually have 3x, 4x return and they're happy with it. Uh, mm -hmm. Can you, are you comfortable speaking of like, what's your average return in let's say five years? Oh, um, so maybe let me elaborate on, because I think what, that I understand what he's trying to say, he's, you know, is, is this like a Forex return on his best deal or is that a Forex return across all his deals, right? If you're that late, things become much more predictable in a way, right? Because you've got a business, you've got a model that works, etc. You just need more money to scale it. So there's less risk. So they agree, um, you know, so they, they agree with less return in a way, but their return is more predictable, which across all their investments um, gives them a really, really good return. Um, I think in the in the, er the earlier you go, if you go in really early stage, you know, people with an ID or people, people maybe with a, a first MVP, um, it, it's all over the place. I mean, maybe... I don't know, in my experience, it's maybe it's very few of them, you know, out of 10 investments, it's maybe only a few that give your money back, because that's how these early, how these early stage funds work, where maybe in 10 deals, you have three, four deals that, um, that get your money back one way or another, because of a liquidation or a merger or something, or maybe it's just acquired for the talent. Uh, and then maybe you've got three or four that are just going out of business, you write off. Uh, but then you still need to have those one or two that do really well. And we're talking maybe a 20 or a 30 or a 40 X only to constant, con like only, only to compensate for the other losses. Right? Yeah, right. So, so those few outliers, um, those few outliers, they, they need to do really, really well to hit it big. Um, every, every VC, is looking for that point where he can break even his fund, right? Where where in theory he can sort of get enough money back to give money back to his limited partners. Um, so I think as an as an entrepreneur, you also need to understand that, and you need to understand where the in what stage a fund is. If if a fund is just raised, it's also a little bit 
different than a fund that's already half or fully invested um because that that could actually change the behavior of the of the investor in a way because imagine that um he just needs to he just needs to break even the fund or do a little bit better and you know that will giving a him a little bit of different incentive and a little a little bit of a different uh, motivation when it comes to or raising more money for your company or maybe selling the company off uh, so it, i think it's sort of if if you if you talk to a vc it's also um important to understand in what phase um in what phase his fund is actually and, and what his fund goals are right is right yeah or, or is investors okay to lose their money and and, <laughs> and, and that big or maybe their his investors are a little bit more conservative and more or more concerned about first getting their money back and then if you understand maybe a vc is not really going to tell you but you need to be aware that these are also things that play on the fund side um, and that also motivates their actions. How they will, you know, if they've got a board seat, then there are some tough decisions to make to be made. That's also going to sort of influence um, influence their um, their decisions. So, speaking of decisions, I want to ask you this: What motivates you to invest? So, what are the primary factors that you look at when you get uh, a pitch from from an entrepreneur? Um, I think it changed over time. Um, I think, I think the ID in itself is actually not the most important one. We always say it's about the people, right? It's about the entrepreneur. Yeah. You, to be honest, I think my, you know, as I think as an investor, you sort of, you know, because you go through these phases of, and and through those experiences where you think, oh, this is really a good ID. This is going to make it, and then. The next one is a really, really experienced entrepreneur, and and he's also going to make it. And and there's a lot of uncertainty, so you never really know. And and you try to over the years, you try to see a little bit of a pattern. Um, you see a little bit of a pattern in it. No, I think I'm looking for sort of hustlers and flexibility in the entrepreneur. And and that's also um, my own experience as an entrepreneur that. You know, I set out with doing one thing, but the company became something else and I exited within a, even in a different market. So uh, I think I, I'm, I'm mainly aware of entrepreneurs who have it all set, sort of, who they, they, you know, they, they, they will, you know, there's this sort of entrepreneurs that I, I like the entrepreneur that pitches and says, you know what, I don't know. Right. <laughs> this part is an unknown to me. Um, I think this is what we're going to do now, and this is how we're going to test it or to execute on it. Um, but you know what? If that doesn't work, there's the maybe we're maybe going to do something else, and that gives me more confidence because we all know that you know an ID or having a feel for a market or having some feed like initial feedback from the market is great, but you need to have a I don't know, you need to have an entrepreneur who's willing to sort of try something really different and see what works and work from there and build it from there. Um, I think that's more important than a big market or a genius ID. Yeah, right. It's very, very Darwin-like stuff that not the strongest survives, but the one who can adjust to the changes in the environment, which I think is very, very, very true in the 21st century when 
stuff changes every every year basically is there anything you personally want to talk about um yeah i think the um i still believe that raising you know like everyone is so obsessed by raising capital it it seems that a lot of startups i see there and i know right like raising capital is is hard and you need the money um but you know if if you have an idea or if something has really got potential the money will come to you so I, I, I like that Andreessen, Mark Andreessen quote where he says, and, and, and I'll paraphrase, and, uh, you know, where he says, if you have product market fit, you'll know it, right? Like investors will camp in front of your door. They will like, you can't scale fast enough. You can't hire fast enough. You can't, et cetera. And if you don't have product market fit, which is often more often, right? And, and I think a lot of the entrepreneurs don't really have never experienced what the difference is between product market fit and not having product market fit. They haven't felt that themselves mm -hmm. and they haven't been through that experience. So, you know, if, if you don't have product market fit, it's a little bit harder to, because, you know, things always, if you put a lot of energy into something, it will always work a little bit, right? It will do something. And, mm -hmm. but, but it will be sort of like, yeah, it's okay. It's, it's converting and people are signing up, but you know, it's not that they're like super, super, that I've got super, super excited customers. Other people are throwing money at me. So, um, yeah, the money is great. And I know it's a lot of work to raise money, but it feels to me often that it's, you know, raising money is not the primary goal of a startup. You know, it's, it's a consequence of being onto something really, really interesting. And having potential users or customers who are so desperate, were so desperate to have your product, and the rest will follow, right? You want you want to be in a strong position. You you don't want to you don't want to raise. You know you want to have competition between your investors. If if you can make that work and it's a drag, it's really hard. And you know you need to question yourself. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. So on this. Um... Before we wrap it up, I wanted to ask you something positive to wrap it up on a positive note, not on the negative as usually. <laughs> so uh, can you tell me a little bit more about one of your most recent investments that you made that you really like and why you invested in that company? Um, yeah, let's think, let's think for a minute. Um, I think one of the companies we did was a... Um, one of the more successful companies we worked on was a um it was sort of a human resource more of a human resource hiring industry company and what they were doing they were um they were trying to scrape information of all sort of sources on the internet to sort of connect the dots and find very specialized talent it was a really uh, it was a really interesting company and it was uh, it was it, it ended up being acquired by linkedin um, nice. And these guys were really smart. They spent actually, they were sort of, they had an ID, but they actually spent, they locked themselves up and they spent 18 months to try and try and try and try and to get it right without sort of scaling it, without, you know, they, they really wanted to get to the bottom and the fundamentals. And um, so if I, if I look at the really 
the the deals or the investments we were involved in were very successful that's in my opinion often what it is right it's people who are willing to um to really get to the bottom and and get to the essence of their product or their market before they're like really raising a lot of money or scaling etc so you really need to take your time so um yeah i think um take it slow at the beginning but then if you need to accelerate accelerate right but don't do it the other way around and sit on a right of cash. that's um, that's that's a very good point and um so my standard last question what would be your recommendation to someone who is just beginning the journey of an entrepreneur let's say in hard tech um some advice um bum, bum. I would say have a paying customer, have a customer. I think the best thing you can do is have a have a real customer, not sort of a customer you need to convince and and sort of force to buy your product and hope it will work. No, no, you want a customer that wants your product so badly. You can even ask him for money, right? Does he write a check? You know, you can use that check yeah. and leverage it one way or another, <laughs> but have a have have a, the ideal customer that you know, that is a partner and that really understands and believes what you're doing. Don't sort of like stay behind your computer and hope that the numbers, you know, the conversion and the customer acquisition costs and all these things we know we talk about, like that's one part, but make sure you know your customer, right? You call this customer and, and that he guides you and what, because you don't, you know, your customer knows better, right? He knows what Absolutely. Yeah. And speaking of that, I have an episode here called important of selling before building, which is exactly on the same advice that you just gave. And I think it's great. So everyone who agrees with that, you should go up and listen to it. So uh, we'll wrap it up here. Thanks a lot, Stan, for coming up today, for sharing your ideas, your thoughts on fundraising and uh, being real helpful. Thanks. Yeah. Have a good day. Thanks. Thanks. Bye-bye.